Welcome to the Vitality Radio Podcast, your source for the truth about health, wellness, and real alternatives to drugs, surgeries, and the status quo of healthcare. Here, you'll find information that empowers you to take control of your health. But it's not just about health and wellness. It's about the politics of healthcare and protecting your health freedom. Now, here's your host, Jared St. Clair. This week on Vitality Radio, we're going to talk about marijuana, medical marijuana. How does it compare really against the pharmaceutical alternatives, uh, if you want to call them that, opiates, benzodiazepines, and SSRIs? CNN published a story that makes it sound pretty dangerous. I'm going to talk about that today on Vitality Radio, and I'll talk about what you need to know about CBD versus THC and how those two relate, whether or not they make sense for you, uh, of course, is up for you to decide, up to you to decide. But I will try to give you the best data that I can. And that's what's up next on Vitality Radio. Vitality Radio always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful at 107 South, 500 West. You can give us a call If you want to know anything more about anything I talk about on this show at 801-292-6662, that's 801-292-6662. And please don't forget to join us on our new website, vitalitynutrition.com. That's vitalitynutrition.com, where you can link to our episodes of Vitality Radio Podcast. You can also check out all the things that I talk about here on Vitality Radio and, uh, order if you'd like that way. But of course, if you have questions, you can always call us as well at 801-292-6662. Okay, so I've got a jam-packed show for you, as always. I'm not sure how I'm going to fit it into one hour, but I'm going to do my darndest to do that. If you are local to Utah and you can, I would love to invite you to a couple of events that I will be speaking at. Uh, The first event is called the Highland Meeting. It's called that because, uh, well, it's in Highland, Utah. And it happens the first Friday of every month. And April 1st will be the first time I've spoken at the Highland Meeting. I'm going to speak about how to obtain emotional and mental freedom in a world that is getting more and more confining all around us. I think that the topic is necessary right now. I'm going to talk about practices that you can learn to help you obtain emotional freedom. And I will also talk about things that you can do supplementally and nutritionally as well. It's going to be a 90-minute meeting. It's free for you to attend. It's called the Highland Meeting, and I will uh, give you details on uh, where you go uh, as far as the address and everything as soon as I have them, because I haven't even figured that out yet myself. But uh, mark your calendars, 7 p.m. April 1st, Highland, Utah. If you can be there, I'd love to have you join me. And then April 22nd and 23rd is something known as the Be Healthy Utah Conference. This will be the second one that I have attended. 
They uh, unfortunately started it right before the COVID thing went nuts, and so they had to cancel one and do a virtual one. But this will be in person at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah at 9400 South, and that'll be on the 22nd and 23rd of April. I'll be speaking along with 35 other excellent speakers, of which at least 10 I know personally, and uh, you don't want to miss any of them. Really, really great information. You can get into the Be Healthy Utah Conference, which is a combination of those 35 speakers plus well over 100 booths with things that will be of interest to you if what I talk about on Vitality Radio is of interest to you. You can uh, join us there by going to BeHealthyUtah.com. That's B-E-HealthyUtah.com. And if you're not in Utah and you're listening to the Vitality Radio podcast, you can actually order the uh, speakers uh, after the fact. You can go on the website now and order up a copy of all of the speakers so you can listen to every single one of them if you'd like at BeHealthyUtah.com. If you use the code VITALITY30, that's Vitality30. Uh, you get uh, you get in for both days for just 30 bucks, which is an excellent value. Tons and tons of excellent information. I'd love to have you there with me. All right, so without further ado, let's jump right into the morning rant. messages about health, let Jared be your guide through the smoke screens of corporate greed, media bias, government ineptitude, and propaganda. When you see what is really happening, you'll be ranting too. It's time to expose the hidden agendas. It's time for the truth. It's time for the vital rant. Okay, our buddies at CNN, one of the propaganda arms of the pharma industry, released a very interesting article on the topic of medical marijuana and the potential side effects and dangers of said option. So let's just read straight from the article and I'll tell you what I think as we go. Some people with pain, anxiety, or depression who obtain medical marijuana cards may overuse marijuana within a short time frame leading to cannabis use disorder while failing to improve their symptoms, a new study found. Cannabis use disorder, also known as marijuana use disorder, is associated with dependence on the use of weed. People are considered dependent on weed when they feel food cravings or have a lack of appetite, irritability, restlessness, and mood and sleep difficulties after quitting, according to the National Institute of Drug Abuse. So, uh, let's see. The dependency on marijuana... Uh, is after you quit, you feel food cravings, have a lack of appetite, irritability, restlessness, and mood and sleep difficulties. Okay, those are the side effects. All right, let's move on. People who obtained medical marijuana cards immediately were twice as likely to develop cannabis use disorder than those who waited 12 weeks before getting cards, new research found. Now, I don't even understand that at all. And I read the actual study and it still didn't make sense. (laughs) But they claim that if you wait 12 weeks to get your cannabis card, somehow you end up with less uh, addictive 
behavior uh and, and they want to i mean they, they don't call it addiction they call it cannabis use disorder and that would be because well cannabis isn't technically addictive but uh they do want to uh kind of make it sound that way it seems like heavy use of marijuana by teens and young adults with mood disorders such as depression and bipolar disorder was linked to an increased risk of self-harm suicide attempts and death according to an earlier study published in 2021 now that study, uh, I, it was unable to find. So I'm going to try and dig that up and see what it says. But uh, heavy use of marijuana by teens and young adults with mood disorders such as depression and bipolar disorder was linked to an increased risk of self-harm, suicide attempts, and death, according to an earlier study published 2021. Now, again, I do not have that study. So bear in mind that I'm right now giving you my opinion. But as I was researching this, I did find that cannabis, especially significant heavy use, as they said, with people who are currently being treated with SSRIs or benzodiazepines can lead to a higher risk of self-harm and suicide attempts. That would not be the same as just cannabis. That would be this that would be mixing the two. And that is interesting, and I think that's important, and I'm definitely going to dig into it and give you more information as I find it. But under the current system of providing medical marijuana cards, people only require written approval by a licensed physician, the latest study said. Indeed, the medical marijuana industry functions outside regulatory standards that apply to most fields of medicine. The study published Friday in the JAMA Network Open uh, followed 269 adults, so it's a pretty small study, from the Boston area with an average age of 37 who wanted to obtain medical marijuana cards. Participants were divided into two groups, those who could get a card right away and those who had to wait for 12 weeks. They used the wait for 12 weeks group as the placebo group because they claim that you can't make a placebo for cannabis. I'm not sure why, because cannabis can be taken orally in liquid and it can be taken in, uh, you know, gummies, can even be taken in pill form. And certainly you could do a placebo for that, but they chose not to. Instead, their placebo was a group that got the stuff later, which in and of itself is very strange. It's also a single blind, not a double blind, because they know whether or not they got the marijuana within or right away or within 12 weeks. So it's a it's an odd study. It's a small study and a study to me that doesn't make a lot of sense. But still, the waitlist group continued. The waitlist group continued their usual treatment, uh, whether it was counseling, medication, etc., uh, is what they stated. All participants were able to choose their choice and dose of cannabis products from a dispensary as well as their frequency of use. They could also continue their usual medical or psychiatric care. People who obtained cards immediately were twice as likely to develop cannabis use disorder, as I discussed earlier. And how likely were they to get that uh, cannabis use disorder? 10%. 10% of those people got cannabis use disorder. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about what that is. Now, those who got cards immediately saw, according to the article, no significant changes in pain severity or anxiety or depressive symptoms but did report improvement in insomnia and greater well-being, according to the study. Now, to me, that's pretty interesting. So it did help them sleep better. And 
they had greater well-being. So what does well-being even mean? If it doesn't improve your anxiety symptoms or your depression symptoms, if you are depressed or if you have anxiety or pain, any of those three, would you consider yourself to have good well-being or bad well-being? How do you fix well-being and feelings of well-being if you have pain, anxiety, or depression? So what improves with marijuana? And what the heck is well-being anyway? <laughs> I mean, that's this study. I don't know who developed this study, but I'm relatively confident that my nine-year-old could have done a better job. But regardless, it's possible that medical marijuana use may pose a high risk or may even be contraindicated for people with affective disorders. And I would agree if those people with affective disorders are on meds for those disorders. Uh, there is technically no really solid evidence that marijuana is contraindicated with SSRIs, benzos, or opiates, but nobody's really doing those studies either, so we really don't know for sure what the story is on that. Uh, and so, yeah, there could be contraindications, and I think we need to know those contraindications, and I won't tell you that there aren't any because I, I don't know. Our study underscores the need, they say, for better decision-making about whether to begin to use cannabis for specific medical complaints, particularly mood and anxiety disorders, which are associated with an increased risk of cannabis use disorder. These need, there needs to be better guidance to patients around a system that currently allows them to choose their own products, decide their own dosing, and often receive no professional follow-up care. Now, there's a lot of things in that study that and in this article that are incredibly ambiguous and a lot of stuff that I kind of agree with. Well, well, I'll say a few things. I'll discuss that in a minute, but let's talk about how this one statement really stood out to me and I thought was really uh, bold, misleading, stupid. I don't know. Pick your word. Indeed, the medical marijuana industry functions outside regulatory standards that apply to most fields of medicine. So why do you think that is? Why does the medical marijuana industry function outside of regulatory standards that apply to most fields of medicine? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is states got sick of waiting for the federal government to get off their butts and approve this stuff as a pharmaceutical, so they decided to approve it themselves, and in their wisdom, in my opinion, approved it across the board, medically and uh, recreationally in many cases. Now, not here in the state of Utah, where it is only uh, medically approved, but in most, well, a lot of the states that have it approved, it's both medical and recreational. Now, why do I think that that's a good thing? I simply think that it's a good thing because Marijuana just isn't that dangerous, and people are going to get it very easily, legally or illegally, and if they get it legally, they're more likely to get authentic product than if they get it illegally, so it's probably safer. That's one reason. Another reason is the war on drugs itself is a massive failure, as I think most of us can admit, and fighting against a war against something like marijuana is absolutely silly, especially when we talk constantly about all the dangers of alcohol and alcohol abuse, cigarettes and tobacco and nicotine abuse, and yet these are both legal and regulated uh, by the government on a uh, you know daily basis, but marijuana was demonized as if it was heroin or cocaine or something like that. Now, you can agree or disagree with me on that. I don't really care. We all have our opinions on that. But when that happened, the states had to bypass the Fed in order to make that work. 
So good thing or bad thing? Well, it depends on your point of view, but that's why it isn't regulated the way that it that other medicines are regulated is because the FDA would not even recognize it as a medicine. So that's thing one. But thing two that I think is very interesting about this whole thing is that the FDA has chosen specifically to stay out. They don't want to regulate CBD. They don't want to regulate THC. They don't want to regulate cannabis of any kind. And so in most states, it's the agriculture department that's regulating this stuff. And that's what's happening here in Utah, which is, I would say, ludicrous or asinine. I'm not sure which, but it's one of those two things, perhaps both. I've even spoken to people from the ag department that agree with me on that. So it's a really interesting situation. But the biggest thing that I think CNN is trying to accomplish with that statement, indeed, the medical marijuana industry functions outside of regulatory standards that apply to most fields of medicine, is that everything that has anything to do with medicine should be regulated by FDA, by the CDC. And we see how masterful a job these wonderful humanitarian organizations of our federal government have actually done with any of the other stuff. So what they're saying is marijuana should be regulated along with SSRIs, along with benzodiazepines, along with um, with uh, opiates, because those are drugs for anxiety, depression, and pain, which is what this study is based on. So let's just take them up on that and say, okay, let's Let's do a comparison. Let's see if they should be regulated the same way. What are the dangers really? Well, it's kind of interesting when we start to look at these dangers. The SSRIs, that's serotonin reuptake inhibitors, okay? So those people, they are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, sorry. The people using those drugs, they do have some side effects as well. It's not in, you know, it's not cravings or a lack of appetite. Uh, a little bit different, a total of 12, according to one study, a total of 1,248 people out of a study that contained about 3,000 people, about 46%, I guess it was about 2,500 people, uh, respondents reported using cannabis as a substitute for prescription drugs. And the most common classes of drugs substituted were actually narcotics and opioids, about 36% of people were using marijuana instead of, okay, and then 13% were using them instead of benzodiazepines, and about 13% uh, of those were also using them instead of SSRIs. So before we jump into the actual individual data, I wanted to make that statement. I apologize for kind of bumbling through that, but make sure that we're clear. About half of the respondents in one specific study said that they were using marijuana specifically to get off of narcotics uh, such as opioids, benzodiazepines, and antidepressants. So let's examine what that would look like by comparison. You know, why isn't the government stepping in and saying, hey, we're going to regulate marijuana the same way as we regulate opiates? and benzos and SSRIs and so on and so forth. And and why are people choosing marijuana versus those things? Is it because they want to get high or is it because they want to get away from pharmaceuticals and feel like it's a safer alternative? Well, let's talk about that right now. There was a study done of about 2,500 people uh, or 2,700 people, sorry. And what they found is that 46% of those people reported using cannabis as a substitute for prescription drugs. 
The most common classes of drugs substituted were narcotics, uh, such as opioids, which is 36% of the people were substituting that. And then about almost 14% were substituting marijuana for benzodiazepines or benzos. And almost 13% were substituting antidepressants. And then this one is very interesting. A total of almost 2,500 people were, uh, or sorry, 2,500 substitutions were reported on approximately two drug substitutions per affirmative respondent. Now, that's important to understand. That means that most of these people, in fact, almost all of the people that were in this study that said they were replacing prescription drugs with marijuana, were using at least two prescription drugs that they were replacing and some of the most dangerous classes of drugs available, opiates, antidepressants, and benzos. So perhaps we should compare marijuana with the current FDA-regulated options and we'll start with SSRIs. Does it make sense for people to be looking for an alternative to SSRIs because they want a safer alternative? Remember, SSRIs are your antidepressant class of drugs, uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, Zoloft, and so on. Now, this is the abstract from this particular study. Antidepressants are supposed to work by fixing a chemical imbalance, specifically a lack of serotonin in the brain. Indeed, their supposed effectiveness is the primary evidence for the chemical imbalance theory. But analyses of the published data and the unpublished data that were hidden by drug companies reveals that most, if not all, of the benefits are due to the placebo effect. Some antidepressants increase serotonin levels, some decrease it, and some have no effect at all on serotonin. Nevertheless, they all show the same therapeutic benefit. Even the small statistical difference between antidepressants and placebos may be an enhanced placebo effect due to the fact that most patients and doctors in clinical trials successfully break blind, meaning they are no longer blinded as to whether or not they had the placebo. The serotonin theory is as close as any theory in the history of science to having been proved wrong. Instead of curing depression, popular antidepressants may induce a biological vulnerability, making people more likely to become depressed in the future. So that's the effectiveness of SSRIs, according to one substantial study that was done, geez, over 12 years ago now. And what about SSRIs in terms of kind of the big potential dangers? Some of the reasons why people are getting on SSRIs to prevent suicide or suicidal ideations. According to, uh, and I'm not going to get his name, his name right, uh, maybe, but his name is Peter. I've got that part. Uh, Gochi, perhaps. Peter Gochi, who is a professor uh, at the Nordic Cochrane Institute in Copenhagen. Okay. Now he says, as the published trial literature related to suicidality and aggression on antidepressants is unreliable, we looked at 60 4,381 pages of clinical study reports, that's 70 different trials that were done, uh, that were get, got, uh, that they got from the European Medicines Agency. We showed for the first time that SSRIs, in comparison with placebo, increase aggression in children and adolescents, 
by almost three times. This is an important finding considering that many, the many school shootings where killers were on SSRIs. In a systematic review of placebo-controlled trials in adult healthy volunteers, we showed that antidepressants double the occurrence of events that the FDA has defined as possible precursors to both suicide and violence doubles, okay? The number needed to treat to harm one healthy adult person was only 16, meaning that 16 people had to be treated with an SSRI before one of them was harmed in terms of at least experiencing what is considered a precursor to suicide or violence. One in 16, not good. Based on the clinical study reports, we showed that adverse effects that increased the risk of suicide and violence were four to five times more common with Cymbalta than with placebo in trials in middle-aged women with stress urinary incontinence. There were also more women on Cymbalta who experienced a core or potential psychotic event. Now, I want to make sure that this is clear because I think it's really important. They're comparing, uh, the, the, the information is tough because if you've got someone who is depressed, you know, clinically depressed, whether it's bipolar depression or short-term or long-term depression or whatever it is, it's hard to know because suicidal and uh, ideations are kind of part and parcel with depression for many people. So then it's hard to know, is it the drug that's causing this or is it the depression that's causing this and the drug's just not stopping it? But these women were put on Cymbalta, an SSRI, specifically for urinary incontinence, not for depression. And they were four to five times more common, uh, more commonly, uh, sorry, the, the side effect of adverse events that increase the risk of suicide and violence were four to five times higher with the people on Cymbalta versus placebo. That's a big deal. So while it's very difficult, again, to prove which suicides or homicides would have occurred without SSRIs versus with them, there is plenty of compelling evidence that they may increase the risk. Well, what about the other primary reasons people use marijuana? One big reason that marijuana is prescribed uh, is anxiety. A total of 17 studies were included in the next review. The results, the the majority of studies found that benzodiazepines were associated with increased suicide risk. This finding was consistent across various populations and different types of research, including placebo-controlled crossover trial, a laboratory model of suicidal behavior, case control studies regarding completed suicides on inpatient units, and large naturalistic studies. The conclusion is that benzodiazepines appear to cause an overall increase in the risk of attempting or completing suicide. So there you go. Now we have SSRIs, which appear to increase the odds of suicide and or homicide or violence, and now benzodiazepines as well. And what about pain? Well, we know a lot about opiates, right? We know that the opiates are an epidemic. We know that they even have billboards, public service announcements warning us about opiate uh, addiction and what to do and getting counseling and so on and so forth. But what about the, the just the sheer numbers? Well, on opiates themselves, we had, uh, this is prescription opiates, in 2020, 16,400 people uh, that died from overdose of prescription opiates, but almost 14,000 people died because of heroin or fentanyl, of which six out of seven new heroin users started 
on prescription opiates. So then you could extrapolate that number fairly easily to say around 30,000 people in America died probably because of the at least the initial addiction and then overdose of a prescription opiate. And the numbers with SSRIs are actually not as low as you might think. Most people don't think of overdose of SSRIs, but the government statistics show that in 2020, we had almost 6,000 people, 5,600 people is a, is a closer uh, number, that died from an overdose of antidepressants. And then benzodiazepines uh, for anxiety, these are things like... Um, Oh my gosh, I'm going to draw a blank here. Uh, Xanax, okay, benzodiazepines. 12,290 overdoses, 12,290. That's almost as high as opiates, and yet we're not talking about that. And that was in uh, overdoses of prescription medicine, okay? So that's what the risks look like when you look at all of those things. How about the marijuana risk? Now, we talked about possibly having cravings. We talked about possibly having a loss of appetite. We talked about, uh, you know, a few other of these, uh, what do they call cannabis use disorders, maybe more agitation, more anxiety, uh, greater depression, some of these types of things. So there are a few potential side effects that happen to maybe 10% of the people that use marijuana for these things. But what about death, suicide, uh, homicide, violence, things like that? Well, despite what is considered a low overall chance of dying from a marijuana overdose, some fatalities do occur. This is according to another article that wants us to believe that marijuana is super dangerous. In 2017, the National Academy of Sciences, uh, Engineering, and Medicine released a book-length examination of the health risks associated with various forms of cannabis. This examination included an in-depth review of the risks for fatal and non-fatal overdoses. And what did they find? The authors uh, of the National Academy's review note that several children have stopped breathing and gone into comas after consuming cannabis intended for adult use. Okay, so kids got a hold of somebody's gummy and had a problem. None of those children died, by the way, uh, but stopped breathing and went into comas. That's not not serious, right? I mean, that is very, very serious, but not from normal use. They got a heavy, heavy dose for a child. And in addition to that, they note that the death of at least one teenager, one teenager is partly attributable to ingestion of an edible cannabis product. Okay, so I just told you that there were about 30,000 from opiates in 2020 alone, 13,000 almost from uh, benzos, and about 5,600 from SSRIs in one year. And so far we have one teenager whose death is partly attributable whatever partly attributable means to ingestion of an edible cannabis product. And yet we're they're saying that maybe we ought to regulate this the same way as the other drugs. Really? Maybe? Do you think? It is not the same. Clearly it's not the same. So the risks of marijuana seem to be irritability, restlessness, and mood or sleep dis difficulties. And you may have cravings. And yet the risk of these other drugs is suicide or potentially homicidal thoughts or actions, among so many other things. 
And CNN is trying to convince us that we need to be more cautious. So there is one thing in the CNN article that I agree with, and it's it's valid for sure. And that is they say there needs to be better guidance to patients around a system that currently allows them to choose their own products, decide their own dosing, and often receive no professional follow-up care. Now, I will say this. I don't believe that people need to be told by a medical professional how to use marijuana safely, but I believe that there is... There needs to be still less and less stigma around it so that people can get access to the information they need. And there probably need to be good quality pharmacists at these dispensaries uh, or doctors that can educate people on how to use them. And people need to get educated. But still, if you use it wrong, outside of small children getting a hold of full dose of uh, adult marijuana, it's very hard to actually hurt yourself. And when what they don't tell you about cannabis use disorder is it doesn't last forever. It's like getting off of, you know, caffeine or something like that. Yes, you can feel worse for a while, but then you go back to normal. And this whole thing about still stigmatizing it is crazy to me. And I'm not really a big proponent of marijuana, but I am a big proponent of marijuana as it relates to people getting off of these really dangerous drugs, benzodiazepines, SSRIs, and uh, sleep aids like Ambien, and of course, opiates. Of course, it's a better option. It's clearly a better option. And if it doesn't work, okay, it doesn't work but it didn't kill you. That matters. You're not addicted for life. That matters. You don't lose your family. That matters. You have to be cautious when you use marijuana. Absolutely. You have to be wise, but you have to be cautious and wise with many products that we use. You can hurt yourself. You can kill yourself with a bottle of bleach. We have to recognize that this is a valid and useful tool for people who otherwise can't seem to get where they need to be without the use of far, far, far more dangerous methods. So what do I recommend? Well, it's pretty simple. And that is first, CBD without THC has basically none of the negative, like none of the negative impact of CB, of THC. It's non-psychoactive, you don't get high, you can drive, you can do all the things that you normally do. And it's very, very effective for many people with chronic pain, chronic anxiety, chronic depression. Now, I will say this, depression, I don't think it's super useful for depression based on what I've seen, but it does help some people. And it's fantastic for anxiety and pain and insomnia for so many people as well. So get a good quality CBD product. I would recommend, and I'm biased here, but the brands that are sold in health food stores, generally speaking, I tend to trust a little bit more than the brands that are sold in smoke shops. The people <laughs> working in health food stores potentially as well. Although if you find a good local smoke shop with someone who's done their homework or you find a dispensary with someone who's done their homework, that can be a useful tool as well. But like I say on Vitality Radio, every single time that I speak, don't take any one person's word for it. Do your own research. Figure out what makes sense for you. And CBD with THC is a valid treatment option for many people. And there are over-the-counter legal CBD and THC combinations giving you what you need without even necessarily having to have a medical card. 
And of course, in most states, you can either get a medical card, including here in Utah, or you can get a, um, or you can get marijuana legally without a medical card in many states. But over-the-counter, even at places like Vitality Nutrition, it is available. And thankfully, you have people who have done some homework and can help you understand how to use it, how to try it out for you. So that's what I recommend. I don't believe that anyone should necessarily say, hey, marijuana is my first option. There are a lot of other excellent options. There's a lot of natural things that you can do for all of these problems that can be extremely effective that don't have the potential uh, downsides of marijuana. But that being said, we need to destigmatize the weed and recognize that marijuana products, hemp products, can be extremely effective and can be used very, very safely. Okay, I've got to cut to a break. And in the second half of the show, I'm going to talk about something called the reticular activating system. It is the ultimate filter for your brain, and it is really, really awesome. Something that if you understand and really recognize how it works, can help you take charge of your life. We'll talk about that in the second half of the show. And check out our website, vitalitynutrition.com. I'll be right back with some more excellent information. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this is Vitality Radio. Insurgent Sports Nutrition is a brand new sports supplement company with a unique philosophy, refuse to conform. In the sports nutrition industry, one company starts something and has some success and everyone else tends to follow their lead. What you end up with is a bunch of Me Too products that don't add up to anything special. What you typically see on the market are formulas with all kinds of ingredients that look good on the label but do very little to advance your training and performance. At Insurgents, our motto is, everything you need, nothing you don't. While many brands put the right ingredients in a product, most don't put the right dose. There are clinical trials for a reason, to prove not only if an ingredient works, but also how much of that ingredient it takes to provide the desired effect. At Insurgents, we won't add an ingredient to a formula unless we can add the clinically effective dose. Our first formula is our Insurgents pre-workout. Pre-workouts nowadays are a dime a dozen. They even sell them at the big box stores. The vast majority of pre-workouts on the market are overdosed on caffeine and other stimulants and underdosed on the stuff that actually increases your performance. Insurgents pre-workout has all of the most critical ingredients to improve endurance, strength, energy, and without the crash that comes with a megadose of stimulants. Insurgents pre-workout comes with or without caffeine and has no additional stimulants. If you want a truly effective, hype-free pre-workout that tastes great, is free of artificial colors, and absolutely does the job, refuse to conform and join the insurgents. For more information about insurgents pre-workout, call Vitality Nutrition, 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. Welcome back to Vitality Radio. My name is Jared St. Clair, and I'm so excited for this second part of the show. I've got about 20 minutes 
of what I consider to be some of the most important information I've ever shared in the 13 and a half years that I've done this show. So be excited because it's exciting information. I think you're going to love it. I've got one little uh, announcement to share with you before I get into that. And that is that I will be speaking at the Highland Meeting. The Highland Meeting uh, takes place at Highland City Hall in Highland, Utah, 5400 Civic Center Drive. And it's at 7 p.m. on April 1st. So that's at the Highland City Hall, 7 p.m. on April 1st. It is a meeting of concerned citizens uh, in Highland that they hold once a month, every first Friday of the month. And I have been invited to speak. I'm going to speak on how to obtain mental and emotional freedom in an ever confining and seemingly less free world. And uh, the it's going to be a combination of practices that you can implement in your daily life to help you find emotional and mental freedom, as well as things that you can do nutritionally to do that uh, also. I'm really excited for the topic. These are things that I teach on a regular basis at Vitality Nutrition uh, in uh, workshops that we do, as well as as I'm talking one-on-one with individual clients of mine. And I, it, it's perhaps my favorite thing to talk about is this mental-emotional freedom thing, and it really is the center and focus of the rest of today's show. So I'm excited to share what I have with you today as well. Reminder that Vitality Radio is always brought to you by Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful at 107 South, 500 West, Bountiful, Utah. You can call us at 801-292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. We would love to help you. And of course, you can visit our brand new and pretty dang cool and state-of-the-art website called vitalitynutrition.com. VitalityNutrition.com, lots of good information there for you, and you can access the, the podcast as well. Remember, if you're listening on radio, I do two shows a week on the podcast, one show that you never get on radio, and sometimes I even do extended versions of the show. Some of my best and most important long-form interviews are uh, podcasts that I don't have time for uh, on the radio. So check it out, Vitality Radio podcast is the name and you can find it at vitalityradio.com or you can find it on any of your favorite vitality or sorry podcast apps i'm just going to call them vitality podcast apps because you know i mean it's the best show on any of them right all right let's jump right into this reticular activating system what is it The reticular activating system, which I will refer to as the RAS uh, from here on out, is a part of the brain that acts like a super powerful filter. It is right in the brain stem between the brain and the spinal cord. It is about the size and shape of a pinky finger. It is essentially a bundle of neurons in terms of its uh, its physical makeup, but wow, how those neurons function is truly incredible. And your understanding of how those neurons function, which I hope to give you a, a pretty clear one today, uh, is one of the most invaluable bits of information you'll ever receive. Four of your five senses send messages directly to the RAS. The human body is actually sending about 11 million, 11 million bits per second to the brain for processing, and yet your conscious mind seems to only be able to process around 50 bits per second. So 
50 from 11 million? That's a crazy amount of filtering going on right there. So let's look at what those transmission rates look like in terms of the actual senses that are sending them. The eyes are sending about 10 million of those 11 million bits of information per second. So what you're seeing is the bulk of it. And then your skin, what you're feeling is uh, about a million. And then you've got 100,000 roughly what you're hearing through the ears, about 1,000 in what you're tasting, assuming you're tasting anything at the moment, uh, and then what you're smelling, which does not react with the reticular activating system, uh, is about 100,000 as well, so equal to the ears. That goes directly to the emotional centers of the brain. Part of the reason why I believe that emotional eating is a thing. So uh, very interesting. So it's your eyes, your skin, your ears, your taste, sending about 11 million bits of information every single second of every single day to your brain and your reticular activating system is in charge of filtering and compressing all of that information. This means that the vast majority of everything we hear, we see, we feel, and taste is actually happening primarily in the subconscious, not the conscious mind. Maybe that's no wonder why our dreams can be so strange sometimes. So much information there. But what does this mean and how do we harness the power of this reticular activating system filter. First, let's look at some examples of the RAS at work. Have you ever started car shopping? You're out looking for the your next car. Maybe it's your dream car. Maybe it's just a beater to get around town. Doesn't really matter what type of car we're talking about, but the car you're looking for or the car that you just bought, have you noticed that then all of a sudden you see dozens and dozens and dozens of the same car, oftentimes in the same color. They pop up out of nowhere. You never noticed a hundred of them before, but now there's a hundred of them there. That is your reticular activating system. What about learning to tie your shoe? I'm currently working with my nine-year-old to help him learn how to tie his shoes. He's kind of got it, but he's not quite there yet. Really smart kid. It has nothing to do with his ability to learn. He learns... <laughs> at a shocking rate, actually. Uh, absolutely blows my mind in many cases. But this reticular activating system is interesting because what he's currently doing is spending a lot of time focusing on how to tie a shoe. Now, I will say this. He only focuses on it for a minute at a time, and then he gets frustrated in many cases, and then he doesn't focus on it anymore. If he did focus on it more, you know and I know from personal experience that he would probably figure it out much more quickly because it is what we focus on that uh, tells our reticular activating system, that RAS, what we really want. How about even learning to walk? Now, when you're a, a, a baby, they say you first have to learn to crawl before you can learn to walk. That's definitely true. In fact, some babies learn to crawl backwards before they learn to crawl forwards, right? And yet when you walk now, you don't think about it. It's an unconscious action. You get up to go where you want to go and your brain just knows that you're going to walk to get to that place. The reticular activating system has this amazing kind of autopilot feature that allows us to remember to tie our shoes and how to tie our shoes right away, to remember how to walk, to remember how to ride a bike. Remember, it's like 
riding a bike, those types of things. And then because we put such a heavy focus on that one car that we want to buy, now we're noticing that one car all over the place. So this gives us a, a bit of an idea of how that reticular activating system is working and what we notice right away. It's truly an amazing system because once we focus on something hard enough and long enough, and then we learn it, it just becomes automatic, kind of an autopilot thing, like I said. So then let's review how all of this works and then figure out how to harness that power to create our best life. The RAS, RAS is the gatekeeper to your conscious mind. It only lets in what it thinks is important to you. But how does it know what is important? Well, simply by recognizing what you focus on the most. You know the guy that knows every stat from last night's game. If you ask him what he ate for lunch yesterday, though, he may not be able to tell you, or at least he may have to think about it for a minute. But you ask him what somebody's percentage was from the free throw line, no problem. You might be that guy, and that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a great example of the reticular activating system. It is what you focus on that your body consciously is able to hold on to and recognize as something valuable to you because you have put the focus there. And so your reticular activating system does you the favor of keeping the focus there. And it's really, really powerful stuff. We all have certain beliefs, beliefs about our world, our family, our religion, our politics, and most importantly, about ourselves. Our RAS is actively looking for data to support those beliefs. This is often also referred to as confirmation bias. We witnessed this firsthand with COVID and the people that were on the side of masking or not masking, the people that were on the side of vaccinating or not vaccinating, the people who are on the side of treatment, uh, early treatment, or following the narrative from the government. But it happens almost without notice in every single aspect of our lives. And the more proof that our RAS lets in, the more powerfully entrenched we become in that belief. Once you become convinced, that belief becomes your reality. Think about how you feel about your religion, if you're a religious person, or how you feel about your political convictions, if you're someone who pays attention to politics, or even how you feel about the individual on that reality TV show that you're hoping wins the whole thing. The connection, the energy, and the belief becomes very, very strong. And the longer you focus on it, the stronger it becomes and the harder it is to get you to budge off of that position. Now, it doesn't really matter if that position is true or false, or if you have evidence that it's true or false. Once you've made up your mind and you've put that focus into proving that it's true, your reticular activating system helps you find evidence and more data to support your belief. That's a really, really important thing to understand. None of this is about positive thinking. This is about true and proven neuroscience. So what kind of a diet is your RAS living on? Is it eating clean, honest, health-promoting information? Or are you feeding it a steady diet of junk? Garbage in, garbage out. You've heard the term. What we feed our body is what our body becomes to a large degree. 
and what we feed our brain. Because remember, most of this information, most of this 11 million bits, we aren't giving to ourselves. It's it's noise to a large degree. It's what's going on in the background. It's what's going on in the periphery. When we're driving down the street, our focus optimally is staying between the lines, staying a reasonable distance behind the person in front of us, keeping at a safe speed, and so on. But we're seeing billboards, and we're seeing other cars, and we're seeing what other drivers are doing, and we're listening to the radio, and we have all these other things happening at the same time, and all of that information has to be processed. But it is what we're focusing on that allows us to actually let in that allows the reticular activating system, or tells, rather, the reticular activating system what we want to let in. It's really, really fascinating stuff. So if we're letting in the garbage, well, you're going to get what you focus on. Your RAS chooses what it lets in based on what you tell yourself and others and what you write down and what you focus on. So even though your RAS is receiving mass quantities of data, it is only allowing your conscious mind to digest what it believes you want the most. Have you ever unconsciously sat at a table with chips or candy or pistachios like I did yesterday (laughs) as I was uh, studying to do this show and just unconsciously eat those things? Not because you were hungry necessarily, not because you had a craving, not because you hadn't just recently eaten, but just because it was there and you unconsciously started feeding it. Well, we can do the same thing with our RAS, and I believe to a large degree that's exactly how our RAS gets fed, unconsciously feeding it a diet of things that aren't necessarily good or needed. And in many cases, what we feed it is damaging to our own self-worth and our ability to perform and create the life that we want. If your RAS is on a regular diet of self-doubt, I can't do it. It will never be how I want it to be. It will always be like this. I'm just not good enough. I'm always late, etc., etc. We will start to see evidence of that bias and confirm it on a regular basis. Our reticular activating system, believing that it is doing us a favor, as it did when we learned how to ride a bike or tie our shoes, will confirm and focus on letting in the information that supports that we can't do it, that it will never be the way that we want it to be, that it will always be like this, that we aren't good enough, whatever those things are that we focus on and tell ourselves. So just like eating a steady diet of Big Macs and Coca-Cola will harm your body short and long term, Eating a steady diet of self-doubt, shame, and other negative emotions will break you down mentally and emotionally. The great news is this. We have control of what our RAS does with the 11 million bits of info it receives every single second. That's right. You can control that filter, but it takes practice. It all starts with an awareness of what you really want, not what you don't or currently don't believe you can have, but what you really want. And when you choose to feed your body a steady diet of healthy, organic, clean, and nutrient-rich foods, you get healthier and more fit. The same can be said 
about what you feed your brain and its amazing filter, the RAS. Your RAS, your reticular activating system, helps dictate what you think and believe, which then helps dictate how you feel, which dictates the kind of life you build for yourself. So take control of it. It is yours and it is there to serve you, but it can only serve you based on what you, what it believes you want served. So that's the reticular activating system in 15 minutes or less. I'm going to include more information on that as well as all kinds of other great stuff in my talk at the Highland meeting. If this struck a chord with you, if it felt like something you need to understand more about, 7 p.m. April 1st, the Highland meeting. It's free. It's 90 minutes plus questions and answers. I think it's going to be great. On top of that, in fact, I know it's going to be great because I'm feeding my reticular activating system that information right now. And I am currently finding evidence because of my focus on delivering the very best talk that I possibly can. That's how it works. And I, as the more I learn about neuroscience, the more excited I, I become. We do offer all kinds of awesome uh, things related to this topic at Vitality, including workshops. If you want to call us, we'll be more than happy to um, educate you on what those look like and uh, how we can help you with these types of things and how we can help you with obtaining your optimal level of peace and harmony with yourself and with the world around you. All right, so that's the time that I have right now. Give us a call at Vitality if you have any questions, 801 801- 292-6662. That's 801-292-6662. We'd love to have you give us a call. If you're nowhere near Vitality, that's okay because we can help you over the phone just the same. We can take care of you through the mail and so on and so forth. And beyond that, we now have a really cool website we'd love for you to check out, Vitality Nutrition dot com is that site. All right. Thank you so much for listening to me. I I want to tell you once again how grateful I am for you. You listening right now to this show means so much to me. It emboldens me and encourages me to continue to dig for the information that I believe can help you live your best life and find your optimal level of vitality. That's what Vitality Radio is all about the truth as I believe it, and sharing that with you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing it with your friends, your family members, coworkers. Check out the podcast if you're listening on the radio. I'd love for you to see all of that extra content and hear all that extra content at Vitality Radio Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been another episode of Vitality Radio. been listening to the vitality radio podcast enjoy your week in the meantime jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it vitality radio is researched and written by jared st Clair. our awesome music is by brian bob young support vitality radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on apple podcasts youtube or your favorite podcast source Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. The FDA has not evaluated this podcast. This podcast is provided with the understanding that information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for care by a medical professional. Thank you.